Welcome to Independence, the FIEC podcast. My name's Phil Topham, Executive Director of the FIEC, and we're going to take our dive into the news. And with me is Head of National Ministries, Adrian Reynolds. Good morning, Adrian. Hello. And our National Director, John Stevens. Good morning, Good, good morning, John. Now, happy birthday to the podcast. Yay. So, so not only is FIEC 100 years old, uh, two days left to book for the Leaders' Conference, by the way, if you're listening to this before yep. uh, Sunday, uh, but also the podcast is a year old. Does that uh, make the podcast now a difficult toddler? Yeah, what, po- what sort probably. Of stage of life, it's it? just it's cruising it's is just it? pulling itself is it up on the furniture year, a bit like different from a human year, yeah, like dog dog years. Years. it's really like in its early teens <laughs> i don't know uh, but anyway a year of podcasts and, and here we are and one of the things we do in the podcast is talk about the news things that are going on and the last time we recorded um it was the day before i got covid but also the day before uh, liz trust resigned as prime minister and suddenly here we are with another new prime minister we, let's start there i missed that we? have we got a new well, prime yeah, minister well there's interesting <laughs> interestingly after the leaders conference i've got a six-week gap till Christmas. I thought I'd have a go. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, yeah. See, see, see how we, we get on. But there we are. Rishi Sunak then, uh, in, all, in all seriousness, is our new Prime Minister. Uh, and he comes in, doesn't he, to extremely difficult decisions. The problems that we were talking about a fortnight ago have not gone away. Yes, the markets have calmed slightly, I think that's fair to say, but still major difficult decisions about the public finances, uh, all the stuff that's continued to go on about immigration, everything that's happened with Suella Braverman. None of this is straightforward for him. His intrate is massive. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, he's been appointed and uh, there are all these huge challenges facing the nation. It is a little better than it was. I think the fact that um, sort of the markets, um, the cost of gilts and bonds has decreased, the mm. cost of borrowing has decreased, the markets are obviously more confident about the future. There was something in the paper yesterday saying he's probably going to be about 15 billion better off as a result of that. So the circumstances are different. But yes, there's been a facing up to the reality of the challenge. Uh, and I think that the mini budget that Liz Truss put forward just simply brought home the reality of the economic challenge that we're facing. You can't simply borrow more money to fund kind of tax cuts. Um, And uh, it's a combination of cost of living. It's a combination of the Ukraine war, the COVID sort of Mm. um, consequences, um, food prices increasing. So yes, I mean, he faces massive challenges um, that need to be um, uh, addressed. And I think um, coming out of the Liz Truss experiment, just a recognition that those those challenges require a a serious and difficult response, and they're going to be tough choices to make. But actually, the truth is most of us in the nation are going to have to make tough choices. Mm. So individuals are going to have to make tough choices about what they spend, what they, how they use their money. Churches are going to have to make tough choices perhaps as they come into this period and they don't have the resources available to them that maybe they thought they would if they're impacted by cost of living and people naturally not able to give as much. So we're in an an, an economic environment in which um, there is no easy solution. The reality is the nation has been living beyond its means Mm. for quite some time. Um, That's partly economic policy coming out of the crash of 2008. It's also a result of COVID. Uh, And the way, to be fair to Rishi Shunak, people were supported through what was a very difficult time. We've got to pay for that now. But yeah, there comes a point at which you can't can't keep doing that because you're dependent on people lending you money. And I think what happened with Liz Truss is there was a sort of the markets responded by she wanted to borrow more money. And frankly, because they didn't trust the ability to it to, to be repaid, essentially the interest rate rates rose. Mm. And that's exactly what lots of poor people face. Poor people can't borrow at low rates. They therefore have to buy a borrow at much higher rates, mm. higher credit cards, higher personal loans, payday loans. That's effectively what happened to the government. Suddenly it could no longer borrow at low uh, kind of rates. One hopes that, the, that for the government that might have brought home to them some of the realities of what poorer people are facing mm. Mm. on a regular 
regular basis. Now, some people are saying, Adrian, that, that actually the only way out of this is to change the government. Um, general election now was one of the headlines this week. Uh, certainly the opposition parties are calling for that. Labour well ahead uh, in, in the polls. Uh, people in our churches might be thinking that uh, as well. What, what, how can leaders well, help lead people through that? There's a, there's a genuine feeling, I think, of unrest in certain yeah. areas. I think we do need to have confidence in our system. <coughs> Um, so we, we have a parliamentary democracy that works a certain way. And whether, whether you like that or not, um, around the edges, on the whole, I think it's a good system. Um, and actually we elect a, a government, or we actually elect MPs, mm. and then the, the person who can command a majority is elected to be Prime Minister, and technically First Lord of the Treasury, which is Rishi Sunak, who we'll come back to, I'm, I'm sure. And so, so I think actually, um, I, I can't see the Conservative Party ever saying we're going to have a general election because it's almost certain that they would lose. So why, hmm. why would they have it? And also they are confident in their own abilities. And at some level, I'm pleased about that. You know, whether you agree with them or disagree with them, mm. you do want politicians who have an element of self-confidence. I mean, obviously, self-confidence can turn into pride and can be um, misplaced, as I think it probably was with Liz Truss. But actually, you do want people who have a, a sense of, you know, we know what direction we want to go in, and this is the way to go in it. And we've voted people in to do that. Mm. So I think... Um, you know, it's wrong to say Boris Johnson had a mandate. I didn't vote for Boris Johnson. Um, I, I, I was part of the electorate that voted in Neil O'Brien. He's our local MP. That's the way the system works. And I think we need to be reminded of that. And I think on the whole, it's a system that served us very well down the years. So um, I, I, I think they should continue personally. I think that's a political view. It's not particularly a theological view. I think they, mm. I think they, should, they should continue. And I, I think we need to give people confidence, not only in, in the fact that it has served us well, this system over the years, um, but but actually, we believe in the sovereign God. We we believe in in God who rules over all things, mm. to whom all kings have to bow down, and um, that's kind of our underlying confidence, isn't it? Which means that it doesn't doesn't make us apathetic about politics or involvement in society, but it does mean that we have this supreme confidence, actually, that we know our times are in His hands. And Rishi Sunak's our first. Hindu Prime Minister John, how should Christians respond? Well, not just Hindu, by the way. First um, person of colour to be Prime Minister. Of course, yeah. So he's Asian mm. of, as, as well, of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite an extraordinary moment, isn't it? How, how should Christians respond to that? And our youngest Prime Minister yep. since, I think, Pitt, who was 25 when he became Prime Minister, and Rishi Shinak is only 42. Mm. Um, Phil, there's hope for you yeah, in I your six week <laughs> window in terms of age. <laughs> I mean, at one level, I think that. Um, Government is, is is under God's common grace. It doesn't require a person of a particular faith position mm, to be able mm. to govern govern well. Many of our prime ministers have been effectively um, sort of atheists or agnostics or Christians in only the very loosest sense. Didn't Boris Johnson um, call himself a very, very, very bad Christian? Uh, he did, and I think that's a rare moment of personal insight on his part. He did, <laughs> he did become a, a, a kind of a Catholic and convert to the Catholic faith, but he did at least have the grace to admit that he's a very, very bad Christian. And I think everybody can know from his private life that that sort of would certainly be mm. the case. Um, so I don't think we need a prime minister who has a particular faith commitment to be able to govern uh, kind of um, sort of well. We want somebody with competence, with integrity, with um, uh, honesty. Uh, in fact, we don't know to what extent Rishi Shinak's Hinduism affects his particular decision making, because like every religion, there are those who are committed adherents and those for whom it's more of a, a cultural mm. um, uh, kind of background. And we honestly don't know, I think, what the situation is in relation to 
Uh, Rishi Sunak. The Bible tells us to pray for those who are raised up by God to rule over us, irrespective of their faith. So in the New Testament, they were being asked to pray for kind of pagan Roman emperors and, mm. and governors who were uh, sort of in many ways kind of abusive and tyrannical leaders, but yet they were praying that God would use them to be able to govern sort of um, with justice. I think actually it's an indication of the, the multiracial, multi-faith nature of Britain today yeah. that Rishi Sunak is able to become mm. kind of prime minister and almost um, unremarked, un, un noticed yeah. on it's not seen as being some radical step and i think you look at the current kind of cabinet and there's a high degree of ethnic diversity kind of represented within the cabinet two of the great offices of state of state are held by people kind of um of of color and and again i think this is part of the the nature of our modern um country we just remember that the numbers of practicing christians in the uk is only about six percent the number of evangelicals is only two or three percent it's not particularly surprising that we have a political class a cabinet prime minister who don't sort of reflect that kind of Christian faith. Mm. It's worth worth saying, I think, that um, for many Christian leaders and many Christians in churches, they, they see the other great faith that's exercised in the UK as, as being Islam mm. and will know a little bit about it. And depending on your context as a church, you may even know quite a bit about it. Mm. But I'm guessing, um, except in a very few places, there aren't many church leaders and church members who have a good grasp of what Hinduism is. Mm, mm. Um, I don't think it gets quite the headlines. Um, so it'd be interesting to, you know, just to think, do you uh, actually to ask leaders, do you know what hin- Hindus believe? Mm. Do you know what their moral code is and why they have it? Um, do you know what the Hindu position is on, for example, abortion? And um, I think probably most people will not be able to answer that. Um, I think the other thing about Rishi that's interesting is his, his teetotal. And um, the, the Westminster drinking culture is being seen, rightly so, I think, as increasingly toxic. Mm. It's essentially what gives rise to a lot of the sexual impropriety that we see conducted at West, Westminster. I mean, the number of MPs that have, have resigned or had to be suspended over the last year is extraordinary, really. And it, it's normally they're drunk at a bar or drunk in the Commons bar mm. or whatever it is. So so I think, actually, um, in terms of leading by example, perhaps it's not bad having a, having a Prime Minister who's teetotal. He is a coke addict. Which could come out the wrong way. Yeah, as in, yeah, as in the sparkling drink. Let's <laughs> yes. be clear about that. But he yeah. doesn't drink. Mm. And I, I think actually that's that's not a bad thing. I think in a, in a globalised world, most countries are now becoming multi-ethnic, multi-faith. That's part and parcel of the way that we are today. And that's been a radical change in the last 50 years. And so we're having to navigate how do we sort of manage uh, as nations to embrace that full uh, kind of diversity. In the past, there was an assumption that everybody would share a particular religion um, that would perhaps be imposed in large measure. Um, in many ways, that experiment didn't work and didn't um, uh, sort of last. But out of that emerged the principles of freedom of religion, uh, the tolerance of others. So actually, the prime minister doesn't dictate the principles in the UK in terms of freedom of religion. Those are established by sort of long precedent, by by the constitution, by the law, by statute, by human rights. Mm. Um, uh, and those are, are protected. And it would be very difficult, I think, for those to be overturned by any prime minister or um, uh, sort of government, unless they had an absolutely overwhelming majority, in which case it would be a kind of a tyranny of the elected uh, kind of government. So I think we can take great confidence that actually um, those freedoms are protected and really important and they're extended to all. And as Christians, we ought to both value them and defend them. And that actually means defending them for all. If we want religious freedom for Christians, mm. then that means we have to be willing to want a Hindu to be a prime minister or a Muslim to be a prime minister, as long as they operate within the constitutional framework that's established. 
Well, we've talked a bit about Hinduism. Can we talk a little bit about Islam? In particular, things that are happening in Iran, where there's been all these protests um, after the, the death of a woman in custody who apparently her, her hijab was not being worn properly. I, I thought it'd be worth talking about that and also thinking a bit about the upcoming World Cup in Qatar, another um, Islamic country. And there's been quite a lot written, said uh, about that in recent times. Uh, first of all, there, there are incredible scenes in Iran. They are. They? And I think... Um, we we just need to acknowledge as well that our um, that these things are going on all the time mm. in places around the world, um, and we're we're very channeled by what we see on the news, and uh, we're, we're quite naive, I think, when it comes to world affairs. Um, so it's interesting how little on the whole world affairs, um, you know, looms large on the on the news or in newspapers or even actually in elections. Um, so, um, you know, you'd think at the moment that the only crisis in the world is in um, Ukraine. Obviously, that's a very deep crisis, but there are some very significant things happening around the world. And um, there are some very oppressive and repressive regimes um, that actually we, we hear very little about and, and frankly do very little about. And Iran is one of those. And, and actually, it's obviously come to the fore because of, of, of the question of, um, of hijab wearing and, and someone who was um, killed um, because of, of not wearing hijab and just the response to that. Um, and, and actually, it's, it's just a reminder that there are very repressive regimes, aren't they? And we've been working through as a church, the World Watch List, um, that Open Doors produced, found that very helpful, just a reminder, actually, that the normal, the normal life, actually, for a Christian is around the world is often to live in one of these repressive regimes. Mm. But even, this isn't um, Christians in Iran, this is, um, there are 800,000 Christians in Iran, this is Muslims who are being repressed, who are, who are looking for some greater freedoms. So I, I think just generally we need to understand and, and we need to have our eyes open, don't we, to what's going on in the world. And linked to that is, is Qatar as well, where the, the World Cup will take place, another regime which, which seems to have an appalling human rights record from what I'm, what I'm reading. Well, I think that's true of the Gulf states. They're desperate to want to try to connect with the Western world. Um, uh, you see, uh, not that just in Qatar wanting to host the kind of World Cup, you see that in Saudi Arabia with them wanting to build this new kind of mega city um, uh, and kind of connect. So they, in a way, they want to integrate within the Western world and have the advantages of that. You see the growth of tourism and business in sort of Dubai. But yet at the same time, they're ruled by kind of authoritarian Islamist um, regimes. And in Qatar, the point of conflict there is the point of their sort of um, attitudes towards LBGT uh, people. Um, homosexuality is uh, kind of illegal. It can be punished by imprisonment. And yet, of course, the World Cup and world football has wanting, been wanting to advocate for LGBTQ rights within the game. Um, those who've been willing to sort of come out and admit that they're footballers who are homosexual. And, uh, that's, that's, that, that's the tension. Qatar is one of something like 69 countries around the world that still make homosexuality uh, kind of illegal and criminalise it. Um, and, and so there's, there's a, an immense tension there in terms of kind of Islamic values um, uh, and, and the law as against this desire to want to connect with um, the rest of the world. And, and uh, at one level, it's it's the corruption that's been involved in the, the game of going there. It's been the abuse of the builders who have been constructing constructing the stadium. That's shone a spotlight mm. 
on the nature of Qatari society and the na- nature of these societies. And it, the politicians have responded. So um, James Cleverly this week was saying to football fans at one level, go to kind of Qatar, enjoy the game, but basically don't express your kind of gay identity as much as you would do. Respect, huge, huge backlash where you're going there. for saying that, though, um, wasn't there? Huge backlash for him for saying that, particularly from the Labour Party. I think Gary Lineker, uh, uh, you know, uh, and others. That, I mean, is, is, that, is that good advice? Well, I think it's difficult. At one level, you are going to a country where that is the law. And at one level, what do you expect to say to somebody who goes to a country where that is the law? You would advise any tourist who was travelling to a country where homosexuality is illegal. So just to desensitise it a bit, um, the, there are restrict, heavy restrictions in Qatar on alcohol, mm. um, but they are making certain allowances for alcohol to be consumed in certain places. And um, so if James Cleverly had stood up and said... Um, you know, if you're going to Qatar, um, don't don't walk down the street with a you know an open bottle of beer. You're going to get in trouble. It's the law. You've got to respect that. There probably wouldn't have been the same backlash. Mm, mm. So I, I think we have got to just desensitise it a little bit to see how it sort of fits in with the, the whole picture of what's going on in Qatar, not mm. just the question about um, homosexuality. Mm. So I think it's a tension of uh, what you do if you go into a country that does have its own kind of rules, its own own laws. You can't expect to go and live as you wish. And for there to be no consequences of that, because you're going into somebody else's um, uh, kind of country. At the same time, the bigger issue is, should that be the position in the law uh, sort of anyway? So Peter Tatchell mounted a campaign mm-hmm. in kind of Qatar earlier this week for sort of LGBTQ uh, kind of rights. Um, and we, we need to remember that in the UK, homosexuality was criminalised until I think it was 1967. So it's not that long ago that even the UK um, changed um, its position. Um, But attitudes have uh, changed. Um, I think from a Christian perspective, I'm not in favour of the criminalisation of homosexuality. I don't think that's necessary. I don't think that's essential. I don't think that's helpful for tolerance. I don't think that's helpful for uh, kind of freedom. I want the freedom for the church to be able to teach that sexual relationships are only appropriate for heterosexual marriage and for us to continue to be able to practice that and live that out. I think that's right. But I don't think that the Bible teaches that we should, um, uh, in a sense, criminalise those who choose to live um, in a, a different way. That's not the kind of approach that's adopted in the New Testament. You don't see the church advocating for that in in, in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. It speaks about how you live alongside people who live differently. You don't um, uh, cut yourself off from them. The the gospel agenda is to be a distinct Christian community that is sharing the good news with with others. And I think in the end, it will be self-defeating for cultures to be able to try to criminalise LGBTQ communities um, uh, it, it's unlikely to produce the kind of tolerant society that will benefit everyone. Mm. I'm pretty sure FIFA wouldn't have given Qatar the Women's World Cup. Mm, interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, th- I think that the, the World Cup thing's interesting because I think it's naive, is it not, to think that football can really change the attitudes of a country. So four years ago, where was the World Cup? Russia. I mean, it would be extraordinary to think that Russia could hold the World Cup this year, but yet four years ago they did. Uh, and suddenly we've got the World Cup going to Qatar. I, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't look good, in my opinion. Is, is, is it naive to think that football could change? Well, I think that's part of a huge question, which mm. is to do with the way that FIFA is run and managed and where money went, and which isn't, you know, it's ongoing investigation, isn't it? And there have been prosecutions which actually have failed in terms of some of the officials. So I, I just think it's a, it's a 
too big a question for us to, to tackle, Phil. <laughs> are you going to watch it? Yeah, the World Cup? Yeah. I, what time's kickoffs? Are they, are they a normal time? Yeah. 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 Okay, very yeah. good. England, so the World Cup final's on a Sunday at 3.30 or 3 o'clock, I think. England will do terribly, in my opinion. Sorry, Is that right? Everybody. I just think they will do terribly. I just think I, okay, it's I just, not in good form. I think England it's, will get to the final. I just, I just feel that we, we need to be able to look back on this podcast and say one of us was a prophet. Okay, so, yeah. well, there we are. England, we'll we'll England will get at least to the final. We'll get Joel to play a clip of it when we do the news <laughs> pod after the World Cup. Sorry, just, John. One further thing on this. I think actually it, Rishi Shinak has said that he's not going to the World Cup. The King has said he's mm. not going to the World Cup. But actually... Prince the William as well. And Prince William. The reason has been too given busy. is too busy. And you kind of think that's ah, actually a cop-out. Mm. Actually, if you're not going because of the position that they hold then actually to simply kind of fabricate and I'm not able to go because I'm too busy, which nobody really believes anyway, is actually to fail to address the issue. So um, it seems to me that, um, again, there's a lesson for us there as Christians. We don't simply cop out of things because we disagree with them. We don't, you know, refuse to kind of go to work and take part in the kind of gay pride sort of um, event because we're too busy. There's a, there's a right and proper place for saying, I'm not willing to participate with that, but we give the real reason for that. I've heard Christians say they won't watch it even mm. as, a, as a protest. Interesting. Quite how that's going to register as a protest, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, but, but it's good, I mean, it's good to take a position on it, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't I don't like it as a football fan. I don't like the fact that the World no, Cup's gone to Qatar. Yeah, well, yeah. you don't like the World Cup anyway. I, I don't. You're a, Bolton, a, you're a Bolton fan. <laughs> more of a club there fan. There aren't really too many internationals that, that, operating at that level. You've, you've uh, yeah, you've uh, revealed my hand there, uh, Adrian. <laughs> yeah, very good, very good. And um, I do want to stick, if I may, uh, with with football. Sorry, oh yes, you're, let's. You're not, not a let's. football fan, but this is really about leadership, I think, rather than football. Are we going this to is talk the, about Jurgen. Yeah, this is the fine given to Jurgen Klopp for his outburst in the Liverpool Manchester City game where uh, he was particularly uh, miffed is an understatement yeah. about one of the yeah. decisions that was made by the referee. He's been fined £30,000 um, for his outburst. There's something in there, isn't there, about the example that leaders set, um, that, that he is a, a manager I think so. I mean, it's worth saying, by the way, £30,000 is a drop in the ocean to Jurgen Klopp yeah. on his salary, so it's not going to hurt him too much. And he was apologetic. He was, a, a, immediately, but, um, really. If, yeah. if you yeah. see the pictures, and you can just Google them and the stills, it is extraordinary him standing over the referee um, right in his face. I mean, it is extraordinary behaviour, really, for any adult, I think. Um, and I, I think Jurgen Klopp, as the manager of the team, has to set an example to his players. So he's older than the players. He's old enough to be the father of many of the players. And um, I, I think the manager has to set an example in, into how to behave, especially towards officials. And, and there is actually a, a groundswell within the football community of tackling bad behaviour towards officials, especially at lower leagues yeah, and grass leagues, yeah, grassroots, yeah, yeah. you know, people talking, referees talking about refereeing under 11s and being abused and chased off in their cars by parents. And it was extraordinary stories, really. And um, I, I think Jürgen does have a, he, he does have an obligation to lead by example, which is a very biblical idea. And um, so the idea of leading by example, um, we're not just to teach what is right. And Paul, Paul says to Timothy, command and teach these things. So you are to teach. Don't look anyone look down. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. But set an example for the believers mm. in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And I think we have to understand that as as leaders, we are to set an example. And whether we like it or not, people will look to us for an example. Mm. So I, I think, I think when you see in leaders um, aggression, anger, um, bitterness. Um, poor behaviour of any kind, really, just just neglecting basic Christian virtues. I, I think um, I, I just think it's tragic to see, mm. and, and it's increasingly common. It seems to me. 
I think that's entirely right. And I think the New Testament tells us that people who are unable to control their tempers simply shouldn't be in leadership. It's not appropriate that they should be in, in local church leadership. Fits of rage is one of the kind of acts of the flesh that is meant to be kind of um, put to death by the Spirit, um, replaced with a, a kind of a gentleness. And you see the qualifications for church eldership in sort of Timothy and Titus and it, it includes being gentle rather than being quarrelsome and, and violent so that being given to fits of temper when under pressure um, actually means that a person isn't doesn't have the maturity and the character to be um, in leadership interesting lo- lots of those qualities for leadership in those passages are all about dealing with difficult people in difficult circumstances you've got to be able to control yourself and exercise self-control um, in those moments. It's, it's not just Jürgen Klopp, there was James Corden who kind of sort of exploded in temper at a restaurant because of the, the, the way that he, he was served. Again, that's another example. Um, and, and temper often comes from not getting what you want, not having what you desire. Your world is sort of, the world doesn't conform to what you think is 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 kind of right. Um, now, I think there's a difference between somebody who um, sort of loses their temper a one-off event in circumstances and what is a pattern of behaviour, that this is how they characteristically uh, kind of treat people for which they're unrepentant and they begin to kind of justify it. And we saw that to some extent in the kind of situation at Mars Hill in Seattle with Mark Driscoll and the podcast that was then done after that. One of the characteristics was temper in ways of dealing with other leaders and other people in the church and frankly in a pattern yeah absolutely and if if that's the case a person simply should not be in kind of local church leadership because they lack the character qualities that are essential for that without trying to get too um uh, sound too self-righteous i try and read through the fruit of the spirit regularly if not daily not quite daily but i I come back to it regularly i do think it's a great stopping off point for leaders um, you know, we, we, we do want to be skilled up in all kinds of leadership qualities, but actually the basic Christian virtues are the bedrock, not only of Christian living, but leadership too. Mm. And we've got a little series, actually, little videos that, that you can use as leaders to go through the fruit of the Spirit. I think it's well worth coming back to again and again, because actually leaders who are filled with the Spirit will display the fruit of the Spirit. Mm. Mm. And that, that's the guard, that the, the leadership prayer, actually, every day is, Lord, fill me with your Spirit, mm. that I might be more like Jesus. You know, that, that's the key prayer for leadership. And and I think actually that needs to come before help me preach a good sermon, mm. help me make wise decisions, help me lead this meeting well. All those things are good to pray for. But actually before all of that comes, Lord, fill me with your spirit to make me more like Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And Philippians 4, we were looking at in the prayer meeting yesterday morning, let your gentleness be evident That's right. to all. That's absolutely, right. absolutely. Just coming back to Jürgen Klopp, interesting that he did apologise. He evidently recognised that that, it, that was unbecoming, I guess. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And kind of, you know, uh, biblically, when we fail, we repent, we seek to change, we seek to be transformed, we seek to live differently. And yeah, absolutely. So he puts his hands up, acknowledges mm. that that's not acceptable, is prepared to take the punishment that goes with that. Um, and that's exactly how we should respond when we sin and when we fall into sin. Um, actually, sometimes I think people don't do that because they fear they won't be forgiven. And I think um, there's a lot of talk in Christian circles about how leaders should repent. Um, and sometimes they don't want to do that because they're in a culture in which one failure is seen as being kind of disqualifying or whatever. I mean, there are some failures that do disqualify. You know, a person who commits adultery or whatever is going to be disqualified by one failure. But with patterns of character, leaders maybe are reluctant to repent and acknowledge that because they, they fear it will be used against them. And also, I think in the Christian community, we can not be a community of grace to others because we assume people are to live by this higher standard and we find it very difficult to recognise that everybody falls short in various mm. ways. 
So it requires a community of grace for people to be able to easily repent and be forgiven and be restored. John, when we were preparing for the podcast, you said we could ask the question, what should we get angry about? So can I ask you that question? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think that the, there's a sort of a difference between kind of fits of temper against other people. And um, there's a, a sort of a righteous anger, a righteous indignation at injustice. I was thinking beforehand, I mean, David, for example, with David and Goliath, is in a way rightly angry with the way that Goliath is insulting the name of God and the way that God is being dishonoured sort of by him. So there are right and proper places for us to be able to have a concern for God, a concern for God's honour, a concern for vulnerable people who are being oppressed and being uh, uh, kind of um, mistreated. But those are about genuine um, injustices and dishonourings in the world. The, th- the situations we've been talking about, Jurgen Klopp and James Corden, are much more about personal affront and not getting my will done. But there's a right and proper place for uh, an anger when we see God's will not being done and people being mistreated as a result of that. But we've got to be very careful because in our hearts we can easily confuse those two yeah. things. And I, I think that's um, my... And actually, when you're thinking about um, God's name being dishonoured and others being dishonoured, it's easier to to understand your heart and mm. work out what's going on because it's not you that's at stake generally. I think when it's personal, I, I find it extraordinarily difficult. Maybe this is just me. I find it very difficult to work out what in my heart is righteous anger and what is unrighteous anger. Mm. And, and therefore, I, I always err on the side of caution, try to avoid all anger. But I, I think there is a kind of righteous anger which is good and proper and um, not to be exalted in, but to say, yes, this is part of being made in God's image and having a renewed mm. heart. But I, I do think we need to be able to self-diagnose. Maybe, maybe I'm saying I need to self-diagnose better than I than I do, because actually our our emotions are complex and how we relate to things, um, that is complex. And very often, I think the anger that we justify as righteous anger is actually essentially a form of pride. Mm-hmm. And I think very often, biblically, we're not even meant to hold on to righteous anger, but actually to give it over to God. Yeah. There's that sense in which actually vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And the way we liberate ourselves from anger is recognising that God is righteously angry about those things. He is perfectly angry without sin, mm. without any of that confusion. And actually, very often, what we need to do is hand it over to God. Mm. Yes, who is in and, full possession of the facts. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely yeah. right. Well, brothers, thank you so much uh, for talking about the news uh, with us this morning. Don't forget, you've got, I think it's about 48 hours to book for the Leaders' Commerce Ooh. if you've not already. How many are coming for? Uh, I think we've got 900. 170 booked in yeah. as of today so uh, we might just hit a thousand over the next and couple of days if, if you are listening to this before the leaders conference which is 7th to 9th mm. november do pray for us please um obviously um pray for all the work that needs to be done to, to get it ready it's quite a big event to put on but we we really want it to be an encouraging and useful time um, we want people who come to be to be built up in their faith and mm. in their ministry and and we do recognize that some people come full of the joy of the lord perhaps they're just come off a Sunday baptising someone or seeing someone converted. Other people will come very low mm. and, and weary. Mm. And, and we do want to be serving one another. Um, so, so do pray for a really good spirit. I think one of the things I've, I've organised lots of conferences in my life. One of the things I love about the FIC conference is there is a really good spirit at it. And um, if you can pray for that, I think that would be a great, a great thing to be commending to the Lord. That is a great place to finish. Brothers, thanks very much. Uh, it's been good to chat uh, about the news. Uh, do rate and review uh, the podcast so others can find it. I hope you found it helpful. And we'll see you in Blackpool or look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks very much. Happy thanks, birthday. Phil.